title for this morning's message is Night the Crushing. Night the Crushing. And we're going to begin reading in Job chapter 1, verse 1, and I'm going to read through chapter 2, verse 10. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house, each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them, them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered, Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have creased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkey feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell among them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep of the, and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down these servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest house, in the oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I, and I alone, have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, 
Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall not we receive evil? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Before we pray, I want to just acknowledge one difficulty that I'm encountering at the moment, just to be honest with you. You know, there are times where where one preaches from strength because there may be something in the message in which he models in some small way. And there are other times when one preaches from weakness because he finds himself needing the message as much as anyone else in the room. So I come to you today in weakness. I'm in the latter category. And so you can pray for me even as I pray for us all as we wade into this divine book. Let's pray. Lord, we are needy, we are desperate, we are hungry, Lord, we are dependent, and we come before you now because we we need something from your word. And we are confident in our dependence that you will deliver from your word. So we pray this morning that you would be with us, that you would speak to us, that you would comfort us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I never assume that everyone who attends one of our Sunday meetings are believers And actually, if you're here and you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, you are most welcome. I'm so glad you're here. But regardless of one's beliefs, let me tell you something. Let me tell us all something of what it means to be a Christian. 
To be a Christian is to be a realist. And to be a realist is to come to terms with something that we instinctively in fear and in fact conveniently deny at times. To borrow the words of Jesus, in this world you will have tribulation. Or to use the words of Peter, don't be surprised by the fiery trials which will come upon you. Or to just allow Paul to say it as plainly to us as he said it to Timothy, endure suffering. So to be a Christian is to be a realist, and particularly a realist as it relates to suffering. Now to be a pastor is to help Christians to be realists, which means to help Christians prepare for the reality of calamity. To warn believers that there are experiences that await you in life that will seem random, that will seem undeserved, even absurd to you. And I don't know what it might be for you. It may be some kind of routine physical exam that uncovers the distressing diagnosis of cancer. It may be the spouse that steps out or the debt that breaks in or the prenatal visit where the doctor looks up and says, I'm so sorry. It could be the layoff. It could be the prodigal child. It could be the loss of a spouse. It could be the car wreck or, or an enemy that appears to be dedicated to damaging your name. I'm talking about those unique seasons in life, and everybody seems to have them, those unique seasons in life where we look to the heavens a hundred times to ask why, and no answer comes. Where we hear nothing, nothing, but the bone-chilling silence that tempts us to think that we are forsaken. We are alone. And because that particular experience violates our sense of justice, the sense that something's not right, God himself goes on the witness stand as we seek to reconcile the gap between what we believe and what we are experiencing. And this is not a happy thought for any of us this morning, but that experience awaits us all. Even if you're here and you're not a Christian, that experience awaits us all. And it burdens me as a pastor to realize that for some of us, this theme is hardly hypothetical. In fact, this past week characterized some of the very things for you that I'm talking about this morning because you are suffering, and in fact, you are suffering, and you don't know why. And for you, this series is not theoretical because you are here this morning thirsting Thirsting for explanation, thirsting for interpretation, thirsting for some kind of hope that you can't seem to find when you turn your gaze toward heaven. And my prayer for all of us has been, may God meet us all. And so that journey is going to begin for all of us as we look at some of the particulars of this story. And so, in Job chapter 1, verse 1, we meet the central character of the story, Job, from the land of Uz. And I don't really know where that is, and that's not really material to the story, but we do discover as we read some very impressive things about the character of our main character. Job, for instance, is blameless. 
He is upright. He has feared God. He has turned away from evil. And by the way, that's not something he scored on a personality profile. That's the declaration of God himself about Job. And that's really important to keep in view. It's important in rightly interpreting Job because we begin to remember that the star of the story is a man who possesses the approval of God. And in fact, in verse 3, he's called the greatest man among the people of the East. We're looking at somebody, we're encountering somebody that was quite a godly specimen. And that's intentional. We discover in verse 5 that he is a good and conscientious father. He is a diligent parent who thought deeply about the behavior of his adult children. And he even hedged his bets by kind of preemptively interceding for them and and giving sacrifices for them. In fact, it says in verse 5 at the latter half, thus Job did continually. He did this continually. And by the way, it's no coincidence that Job's parenting is presented here as blameless because the reader will soon discover that blameless parenting does not insulate one from suffering. That even the worst things can happen to the best parents. In verse 2, we learn that Job is a wealthy patriarch type. In other words, like most rich patriarchs back in those days, his wealth is in movable property. So he has sheep and he has goats and he has, or sheep, goats, he has cattle. And there is a rather detailed description of his assets. And again, I want to remind you all of that there intentionally. And it's intentional because God wants us to begin to encounter. God wants us to begin to engage the scope and the magnitude of this man's loss. And so that that, that scene is set. And what's most important for us to keep in view as we proceed is that verse in chapter 2, verse 10, where it says, in all of these things, after the loss of his kids and property and reputation and support, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, that's really important. In fact, it's essential because this book is setting the stage for us to think deeply about something that we would tend to shy away from, to think deeply about an idea that can strike fear into the soul, that that our walk with God is not always this zero-sum game where everything we, we sow, we reap where all suffering can be explained. Everything has some kind of purpose that we can readily identify. The essential theme for this book seems to be introduced in the idea of innocent suffering. And so in chapter 1, verse 6, the scene shifts from Job to heaven. And the next character presents himself, Satan comes before God. God praises Job. Satan accuses Job. Beginning of chapter 2, the same thing happens a second time. And I'm going to comment a little bit more about that in a few minutes. But, but keep this in view as we proceed. Keep this in view. At no point in this book does Job know about Satan. Does Job know about this heavenly exchange or this heavenly arrangement that took place? In fact, we, the readers, are the only ones that do know about it. So though Satan plays this role in the introduction, Job's suffering is not set up as a Satan-Job thing. Job's suffering is set up as a God-Job thing. And that's really important. 
And that leads me back to the first big idea that shows up in the introduction. And I, I want you to think of these as, as dots that connect the introduction to the entire book and connect the entire book to us. And so I'm going to give you two dots. We're going to start with two different dots this morning that connect the introduction to the book and the book to us. Here's dot number one. Our pain is never random. Our pain is never random. Have you ever received news that hits you so hard that it virtually knocked the wind out of you? You know, the kind that seizes your stomach so forcefully that you almost feel upon hearing it that you're going to vomit. President Roosevelt called December 7, 1941, the day of the attack on Pearl Harbor, a date which will live in infamy. In chapter 1, verse 13, Job has a day which will live in his mind in infamy. It starts this way, now there was a day. There was a single day. So the first series of blows that came upon Job's life came in one single day. Actually, the first series of blows that came upon Job came in about a 15-minute period. Job was first notified of the theft of his property and the death of his servants in verse 13. And then it goes on in verse 16. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven, burned up the sheep and the servants. Verse 17, while he was speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups, made a raid on the camels, took them, struck down the servants. While he was speaking, verse 18, there came another and said, your sons and your daughters eating and drinking wine, and behold, a great wind comes across the wilderness, strikes the four quarters of the house, and they are dead. And as if that's not enough, there was a second day of infamy as well for Job in chapter 2, verse 7, where Job himself is struck with loathsome sores to the degree that his wife is even saying, listen, give it up, forget it, forget God, give up. That's her message to her husband. Talk about feeling forsaken. Talk about feeling abandoned. Talk about feeling alone. You know, it seems to me that calamity like this provokes one fundamental response. It's a fundamental response that views God in different ways, but there's one fundamental response that we seem to have, and that is this feeling that my suffering is random. That's the main point. Our pain is never random, but we feel when we're suffering that our suffering is random. And that plays out in a number of different ways. Some see God as non-existent. And therefore, God is unable to order our trials because he does not exist. And so there's that sense where my pain is random because the universe is random. So, for instance, as the acclaimed author and prominent atheist Christopher Hitchin lay dying of his cancer, his wife reported that, quote, God never came up. It was a non-subject. What I'm saying about that is Christopher Hitchens was acting consistent with his beliefs even in the way he was dying. Other people see God as real, but God is 
unable or unwilling to govern in our afflictions. So they may believe, for instance, that God just kind of sprinkles the earth with tribulation and trials, and they're random, and he just kind of watches where they drop and how we navigate it each and every day. Or God maybe is more like an absentee landlord where he owns the earth, but he never tends the earth. You know, he owns it, but never goes to it, owns it, never wants to bother with it. And so what happens is functionally outside of his control. There's a very trendy theology right now that's emerging that has been historically rejected by Calvinists and Arminians alike, that, and it basically says that God can't know the future because the future hasn't happened yet. Therefore, the future is open. It's called open theism. It's a troubling concept that downsizes God and places our suffering outside of God's control. And somebody that believes that might say, my pain is random because God is either powerless or he's heartless. But one way or another, my pain is random. However, the most common one for someone who knows the Bible goes more like this. They believe that my pain is random because I just don't know why. I don't know why. Why did this happen? This is Job. This is where Job is. It's interesting, as you study the book of Job, we're going to discover together that Job never doubts the existence of God. In fact, he never doubts that his trials have their origin in God. For Job, his biggest problem is not his dualism, it's his theism. In other words, it's his belief Not that Satan and God have equal power and they're always battling it out together, which is dualism, but he's a theist, which means he believes God is supreme and God is in control of all things. In fact, his conclusion in chapter 1 is, the Lord gave, the Lord take away, has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And so for Job, and this is important, the sense of randomness comes from not knowing why, not knowing the cause of his suffering. Can you relate to that this morning? You don't know the cause. Ask yourself this question, what is the hardest part of my present affliction? You know, we see the effects. We we see the effects all over the place. We see the fruit. We see the effects We see the sickness in our body or the state of our affairs or the choices of our children or the amount in our bank accounts. But there is this tormenting question that continues to plague us. What happened up there that's resulting in this? And why can't I know what took place up there? All I seem to deal with each and every day are the effects of whatever decisions were made up there. And when all you have are the effects and you don't know the cause, suffering can seem irrational and even arbitrary. So when you're Joseph sitting in prison after you've been sold into slavery by your brothers, you don't know what to do. When you're Joseph and you've been falsely accused by your employer's wife, even after you've engineered a comeback and you've been taken down again and now you're sitting in prison, you don't know what to do. When you're Joseph and you lay forgotten in prison after you have served with your gifts the cupbearer and the baker who have used your gifts and then conveniently abandoned you and forgotten about you, you don't know what to do. 
It's in those moments that our afflictions seem arbitrary. They seem utterly meaningless. We just don't understand the cause. And so as Christians, we end up concluding, of course there's a God. He's just not very good at his job. He's just not very effective in his role. See, for Job, the reader knows the real story. We know about this dialogue between Satan and God. Job does not And in fact, in the name of full disclosure, I should probably tell you that Job never learns the cause, at least not in this book. God never says, and now Job, here's what happened. Here's the real explanation. Here's how you came to be in this position. God doesn't feel obligated to explain himself to Job, not in this book and probably not in this life. One of the things we are going to discover together in this series is that God is so serious about our trust that he will create the worst moments of our life to produce it. God is so serious about our trust. God is so serious about our trust that he creates our worst moments, our tests, our trials, our tribulations, our attacks, to not only produce it, but to secure it until the final day. And I guess the point that I'm trying to make, and the one that I want you to remember, if you remember nothing else, is that they are never random. Never. Never random. There is always some design to convert the question from why to who. From why do I suffer to Who do I trust? See, we're all the same in this. Why becomes the preoccupying question that just does not have an answer. I mean, eventually it becomes so bad for Job that he says in chapter 10, why did you bring me forth from the womb? Why was I even born? Why did you even bother to give me life? Would to God that I had died before anyone had even seen me. Because why becomes this preoccupying questions that can end up forcing forward questions that we never dreamed that we would ever ask? Why was I born? And and we continue to beat on the door, and the door that has the answer to why behind it just will not open. It's like a safe that just won't open its door. I read an article recently about a safe that someone had bought in Washington, the state of Washington, Washington, that's been locked since 1891. And they don't know what's inside of the safe safe, except for one thing. The safe came with instructions that said, with a note that said, the combination for the safe is taped on the inside of the safe door. In other words, the answer for how to get in is locked inside of it, but you just can't get to it. I thought, that's us. That's us when we're suffering. You know, we're always trying different combinations to try to get behind the door to really understand why. We're trying to do anything, do anything we can to crack the code of what is God doing, what is God saying. And so we'll, we'll try spiritual warfare. We'll try to fast for 40 days. We'll try to confess all of our sins and pray. What's going to crack the code? What's going to give me my answer? What's going to answer the question of why? And the safe will not yield. The answers remain locked away. See, for Job, he eventually learned that the question is not why, because God reserves the right not to answer that question. The question is who. 
Job's trust in God is the target of the trial, which is interesting because Job ends up at the end, and we're going to study this in the last couple of messages, but Job ends up at the end repenting before the trial even ends. Before his circumstances change at all, he ends up confessing and repenting because for him the question was changed. Job goes from why is this happening to who do I serve, who do I trust? And it's why his eyes were open to see what all of us must realize with respect to our afflictions. And that is that our suffering is never random. So that's the first big dot to connect. Here's the second one and the last one. Our enemy is on a leash. Our enemy is on a leash. Chapter 1, verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 1 escort us into heaven on a day when the angels are before God. Excuse me. Angels are before God and Satan kind of crashes the party. And on both occasions, Job has pleased God, so much so that God celebrates Job in front of Satan and celebrates Job's many qualities before Satan. And here, we begin to derive some insight into how our enemy works. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of the brothers and sisters. And that's exactly what he does before God in the book of Job. So God calls forth Job's example and Job's quality, and this is basically Satan's response. He says, well, of course he's good. Of course he's good. You protect him. You bribe him. He's like your spoiled favorite. In fact, if you took away his perks, you'd discover that Job's allegiance to you is nothing more than crass self-interest. That's what you don't know, God. But God has a plan. And it is a plan that unfolds in many different parts of Job. And the plan is ultimately to prove that a man like Job is faithful to God despite his circumstances and despite his blessings or his afflictions. And so God grants Satan permission. Satan has a certain ability to create calamity, but God limits him. God sets the ground rules for the suffering. God says, you can do this, this, and this. Don't do this. You're not allowed to do this. Satan's on a leash. Please, please, let's not come up with any kind of enlightened theologies that spring God from being responsible, that spring God from being God. Because God's not looking to let us off the hook in the book of Job. He's not looking for us to come up with fresh ways to, to describe why he approves, but he isn't responsible, why he approves, but doesn't cause. God decreed that this would happen, and Job knows that. See, the thing that's so helpful about this story is that it really provides, provides some insight into how, well, Romans chapter 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for good. God causes all things to work together for good. In fact, let's just take that idea and let's interact with what's going on in Job here and think about it a little bit because someone may ask, what caused the calamity that brought all of this upon Job and his family? 
to which we can answer, well, there are certainly natural forces in play, aren't there? The, the desert winds blew and lightning struck, and it was bad weather that killed them, that killed the children. Well, certainly natural forces were, were in play, but is that really why? Well, someone else may call out from another side of the room, no, no, it was the work of evil people. The Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, they looted and plundered. It was the greed of evil men that killed them. And someone may say, no, 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 you're not reading the book. You're not reading deep enough. It was, it was Satan that called, caused them because God said to Satan, everything is in your hands. You do what you want to do. And, and, and we don't know all that Satan is capable of, but certainly when permitted, he can do some damage. He certainly marshaled the weather very capably. And he acted through the greed of evil men to bring on the destruction of all that Job owned. So in this story, the storms and ungodly murderers, though acting according to their nature, were obviously integrated with Satan in some way, and Satan engineered their end through his activity. However, there is an even deeper level, and that is God. It all happened by the decree of God. And, and, and if you doubt that, let me ask you a question. Think about this question for a second because this is a question that's often passed over when we study the book of Job. Who brought up Job in the first place? Who, who brought up Job's name? Okay, let's think about this for a second. You have an evil being that has dedicated his existence to the destruction of all that is godly that has dedicated his existence even to the destruction of God himself. He's rebelled against God. So he lives to take down everything that's godly. He comes in the presence of God. And what does God say? So, have you, uh, have you noticed my godly servant Job? God comes out with the question. God's the one that comes forth with it. Do you understand what's taking place here? God played Satan. He scammed him. He set him up. It was a sting. He punked him. Why? Because God wanted to use Satan's evil for his purpose. Just the same reason it always is. God wanted to use Satan's evil for his purpose. Satan was only the actor. God was the director. Satan was only a bit player on the stage. God was the director. If you've ever seen the movie Jaws, you may remember there's this opening scene where a woman is swimming out and she goes out not knowing that the shark there and Jaws is there and, and he, you know, it's the beginning of the movie and he, you know, he takes her down and, but that's just the beginning. She's just like the appetizer because the main meal is coming throughout the movie as he's killing other people. But the question that I wanted to interact with with you is, okay, who, who killed the woman? Well, you might say, well, I saw the movie. I read the book. Certainly, the shark killed the woman. The shark was the cause of the death. But let's trace it back to the real source. Who killed the woman? Peter Benchley, the writer of the book, killed. He, he was the author who determined that the woman would be killed. He was the author that wrote the script and wrote into the script that she would 
die. Listen, when we encounter God, we encounter a being who is good, who is powerful, who is omniscient, and is big enough to stand outside of the story and write each part for each actor on the stage. He is the author who determines what each player does. And this is where, and this is where you really get some, the, the book of Job actually foreshadows the cross where Satan manipulates Judas to betray the Savior, not knowing that God was behind the scenes pulling the strings so that the death of Jesus Christ would result in life and blessing for his people. That there was a bigger plan that was being set in motion, a plan that went all the way back to creation, all the way back to Genesis, where immediately after Satan did his work in the garden, God turned and cursed the serpent, saying, he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The bruising of the head of the enemy is the first sighting of the gospel in Scripture all the way back in the beginning. Immediately after the fall, God has a plan. He's working his plan. And he forecasts a time when the child of a virgin would be crucified between two thieves and he would decisively crush the head of the serpent. So all the way back in the, in the Garden of Eden, there's a trace of God's hand unfolding. There is a, a kind of, of, of deeper magic. And I use that term referring back to the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, where, where, the, where the witch thinks that she's destroying Aslan by condemning him to death for Edmund's treachery. You remember that? But she doesn't know that there's a hidden law in the table. There's a, what's, what's called a deeper magic, that when an innocent victim dies for the mistakes or sins of another, that the table cracks and death starts to work backwards. There's a po the point is that there was a deeper way, there was a deeper magic that was unknown to the enemy. So we always have to remember, sure, yeah, Satan is smart, he's smart, he knows the law. I mean, that, 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 ex, that story in Matthew chapter 4 where he's interacting with Jesus, it's evident that the boy knows his scripture, but he's not omniscient. He is on a leash. And so God manipulates him to achieve his will, with the ultimate example of that being when God ordained the greatest suffering in the history of the world and the worst injustice that ever took place in the history of the world when a, the sinless Son of God came and the sin of His people was placed upon Him and God judged Him for that sin. But it was that act, that suffering that unleashed salvation to the world. Do, do you see the point that's coming out here? That from the great, even the greatest evil can come the greatest good. And it's why Job is so hopeful for those of us that are suffering, whether we are here as believers or unbelievers, because the gospel announces that beneath our suffering, beneath our alienation, there's a deeper magic. There's God who is at work. And you know what this means? Because this really delivers us to the heart of the book of Job. What it means for each one of us is that God can be trusted. 
See, Job's problem is not that there is no God. No, not at all. Job believes there's a God. He just feels he can't be trusted. He just thinks he's not good. He's, he's God. He's just not a good God. And I think in doing this, what we see, the effect of this on Job is what begins to educate us concerning the heart of Satan's work. See, the effect on Job exposes the heart of how Satan works. Satan knows that he can't destroy a Christian, so what he does is he attacks the character of God in our mind. And he does the same thing to us as he did to Job, as, he, as the serpent did to the woman in the Garden of Eden. He basically creates these circumstances that tempts us to forget who God is to forget what God has done. See, Eve, Adam, and Job all experienced the same thing. They all were facing the same temptation, all coming to the same conclusion. God is not good, and he's withholding good from me. Satan is always setting the stage to try to deliver us to that point. That's the nature of his work. And so this, in the book of Job, unearths the core of Satan's Work. What he wants us to do, to borrow the language of Romans 1, he wants us to exchange the truth of God for a lie. He wants to drive us to despair. Calvin said, Satan's aim is to drive the saints to madness by despair. And if you're sitting here wondering, how do I survive his schemes? If you're wondering, how do we avoid his arts? How do we journey forward under the burden of doubt and of pain? How do we find our way when we've lost sight of the character of God? Well, you'll just have to come back next week when we look together at Job's lament and we discover how God met him. Let's pray.